Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Never ending struggle. I'm your host, Charles Coulomb. In the next, uh, the next hour, we will be looking once more at another chapter of the ongoing story of the Catholic Church and the world that started at uh, Pentecost and will go on until the end, looking at heights, looking at valleys, looking at triumphs, looking at tragedies, all of them with the intent of encouraging you, my listener, my viewer, depending on what you are and what format, uh, in keeping up the struggle in your own daily life, as indeed I hope it'll help me keep it up in mind. At any rate, tonight what we're going to deal with is the story of church architecture. Now, many, 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 many people may have noticed running around the United States or any other country for that matter, that uh, Churches, Catholic churches in particular, come in many different styles, many, many different styles indeed. Um, they'll also notice that at one point, some point in the 70s, they went from being kind of pretty to being sort of ugly. So that the churches built in the late 60s, the 70s, etc., tend to... Um, well, to be honest with you, to be kind of uh, dispiriting rather than uplifting. More than that, and worse than that, they don't give you quite the sensation, quite the feeling of what you're there for. So what we're going to look at tonight is the history of church architecture from its beginning to the present. We probably should lay down a couple of things, a couple of rules, you might say. I say you might say, because these aren't hard and fast rules that are defined somewhere. They're just useful tips for looking at things. First and foremost, one of the great bylines of architecture is that form is determined by function. That is to say, uh, a given building should reflect its use and should be appropriate to its use. It should be fitting for its use. So, for instance, a um, house that had no kitchen and no bedrooms uh, actually wouldn't be a house because sleeping and eating are really a big part of life. And your house is presumably the place you do a good chunk of your living in. All right. So there are certain basic principles about churches that actually come down almost from the beginning. And what are they? Well, the first is that the church is the usual uh, place for the sacraments to be performed, and especially for transubstantiation, the daily arrival of God himself on earth to uh, be housed in, a bit like the temple in the Old Testament. We'll touch on that momentarily. But that being the case, uh, from the earliest days, uh, in various ways, Various church writers, the church fathers and other people, made the assertion that the church is a province of heaven. It's an outpost of heaven in this fallen world. When you are in the presence of the Eucharist, the uh, Blessed Sacrament, you are in heaven, in a sense. You are having the beatific vision right there and then. And so to the degree that one can, 
one needs to make the church reflect that reality in accordance with one's abilities. Early on, uh, the, um, uh, well, actually we can get to the historical narrative with that. Um, that's the biggest principle to bear in mind, that the church is an outpost of heaven and that uh, God himself is therein resident in a Catholic church or Orthodox or Armenian or Ethiopian churches, etc. But uh, at any rate, that's that's what we have. So the earliest, uh, th the first thing to remember about church architecture is that, of course, in the beginning, it was very simple, and it was very simple for a reason. And the reason is that we were illegal. We were outlawed. We were an underground organization. And so the liturgy took place wherever it could, private homes, rented spaces, and all very much done on the sly. But one of the places in Rome that became common for the Christians hiding out to offer the mass was in the catacombs, and specifically catacombs where martyrs had been entombed. And the holy sacrifice would be offered on their tomb, on the tomb of a martyr, uh, a sacrifice, a greater sacrifice on top of a lesser sacrifice for which that lesser sacrifice had been offered. Now, that was an extremely important part of our history, the first 300 or so years. Um, and a memento of it came away. And the memento was, both in the Western Rites and amongst the Byzantines, that there should be a relic placed in uh, the altar. And if it couldn't be, if you were going to be offering mass on uh, some other surface, well, that's what the Antimension was invented for. The Antimension is a cloth containing a relic. Uh, the name is Greek, and as you can guess, the idea originated with the Greeks. Well, uh, after three, uh, 312 A.D., the Edict of Milan, uh, we become legal. And in East and West, we immediately begin building outward churches. So what is the style? What does it look like? Well, the um, Roman governmental offices, you might say, in every town were called the Basilica. The Basilica from Basileos, which is king or emperor in Greek. Uh, and the governmental basilica in every um, in every uh, town was basically the the center for the imperial government. Remember what I said about each church being a outpost of heaven. Well, as the secular basilica uh, was the outpost of the of imperial rule, so too. Uh, when churches began to be built as independent buildings, they were built in emulation of the basilica. We still use the term basilica to uh, address, to call a certain sort of church, about which I'll talk a little bit later. But uh, it's interesting in Romanian, 
the word for uh, the word for church is bezerita, which is a a uh, borrow from the word basilica. Anyway, so the first churches, both in the east and the west, uh, for the most part, resembled the government offices, the basilicas, but they had a big difference. The big difference was the altar. Now, after the Vatican II, there was a lot of falderall going on about how in the early church uh, the priests had faced the people and so on and so forth. Actually, it appears that that wasn't true at all. They faced east with the people. Um, they could walk all around the altars, perhaps, but they faced east. Why? Because east was the location of Jerusalem. Uh, it was the liturgical east, so that when the priest was offering the sacrifice and the people with him, they were all facing toward Christ. And one of the important features of early churches, and in different ways down to almost the present, it's been honored in just about every style of Catholic church architecture, was a distinction between the sanctuary where the altar was and the larger part of the church. And very, very often in many places, the only people who were allowed to step into the sanctuary were uh, people in holy orders. Now bear in mind, we call the minor orders today, the uh, porter, uh, the lector, the exorcist, and the uh, acolyte. Those were full-time jobs in uh, the early church. And those people, could enter into the uh, enter into the sanctuary. So, at any rate, uh, in the course of time, the uh, screen between the populace and the uh, and the sanctuary became a real fence. In the West, we called that a root screen, a cross screen. In the East, they would put icons on it. And eventually, became what is now called the iconostasis, so you couldn't really see what was going on. In the West, uh, after the Reformation, the rude, king, the rude screen kind of dwindled down to the altar rail that uh, many of us either have experienced or remember. Uh, but whatever the case, it was to show the difference between the sacred and the profane, heaven and earth. In the West, the central section of the church where most people gathered did be called the nave. Uh, this comes from the Latin for ship. And there's a reference there to the faithful being on the ship of Peter, the, the boat, Peter's boat, all being and the like and the likening of the ship of the uh, church as a whole to the ark of Noah as the ark of salvation. Uh, time and again, uh, various writers would talk about how uh, there was no hope out of that uh, ark of salvation than there was out of the ark of Noah. But at any rate, that's what it represented. In the next section, to consider these styles.
Well, as I mentioned in the last section, the uh, first church buildings were very much like the government buildings, the basilicas. Now, the first major style of church architecture that we can really look at is called Byzantine. So-called because, as we know, under Emperor Constantine, the capital of the empire shifted from Rome to Constantinople. And there, in the, uh, the former name of Constantinople before Constantine, was Byzantium. And so the Eastern Roman Empire came to be called the Byzantine Empire. But it's the same entity. It's, uh, it simply continued. Uh, they developed a uh, style of architecture and of uh, church decoration that was very... Um, very unique to itself and of course it was very popular not just in the east but also in the west in places like Ravenna which was the imperial capital of Italy after oh about 400 Rome pretty much remained the center of the pope but the uh, the center for the emperor in Italy at that time was Ravenna and a number of the churches built there <clears throat> were in the Byzantine basilica style and that would, uh, in simplified forms, would go all over Western Europe. But the Byzantine style, which you can still see today, especially in the Eastern Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox and so on, is very, uh, very ornate. The iconostasis I spoke of will simply, will really jump out at you, as will the icons. Uh, and again, the thing about the Eastern icon, whether it's in a church or on its own, is that it is seen as being a, um, a an eyeway into heaven, a, a glimpse of the of the impossible to express, the inexpressible. Um, and so, the um, Eastern liturgy, similarly, uh, is very, very much along those lines. It's very elaborate, uh, great deal of incense. And in more recent centuries, they put bells on the censers. So when you're at an Eastern Rite liturgy, your uh, all of your censers uh, uh, are definitely uh, engaged. But in the West, uh, in terms of uh, external architectural form, a uh, modified style Carolingian came around the time of Charlemagne, and that in turn and this is something you'll see about architecture, is that usually there's no rigid break. There's a transition from one style to another. And from the Carolingian, which featured the same sort of uh, domes and so on as Byzantine, the Byzantine were big on their domes, um, came the Romanesque style, which had uh, bigger windows, uh, rounded arches, and the Romanesque style is uh, was prevalent throughout much of the West, oh, at least in the first millennium and beyond as well. It's a very uh, very solid style. Very, what's the word I want? Uh, it speaks to the strength, the solidity of the faith itself and the, the rootedness, if you like, 
of the faith. But starting about year 1000, picking up uh, picking up speed, and when the the uh, architects of Europe discovered a number of things about engineering, uh, the use of things like flying buttresses and uh, pointed arches to carry hold the weight of the heavy stone that they were building. From this emerged the style of architecture we call Gothic. Uh, it's where Romanesque is solid and very staunch. Gothic is soaring, soars to the heavens and speaks to man's aspiration to reach heaven. Uh, it has been claimed by many that uh, Gothic is the the superior Christian architecture. Uh, and whether or not one agrees with that, and there are a lot of important and wise thinkers who have felt, felt that way, others have not. But whether you do or you don't, uh, the sheer multiplicity and magnitude of Gothic architecture is overwhelming. The other thing to bear in mind, too, is that when we look at medieval Gothic churches, we think of them as being gray and uh, sort of colorless, and the beauty being entirely in terms of shape. Well, that's not true. They're that way because of the rather building abuse of history of uh, Western Europe from the uh, Protestant revolt on. But during the Middle Ages, these buildings were very, very brightly colored. Some of us would say godly, but they, they were very, very bright. And in recent years, uh, especially with the uh, growth of computer technology and things like that, we've been able to find out exactly how bright some of them were. And I'll tell you what, they, uh, I mean, there had been a theory that medieval people were colorblind and couldn't see but grays because of this grayness that we associate with Gothic. Well, that's about as silly as, as any other idea people have come up with. And the proof of the pudding is this discovery of just how colorful they were. Um, the root screens we spoke of earlier really came to their fruition in the Gothic era. Uh, mass again was offered uh, at Orientum. But then you have the coming of the Black Death in the 1300s. And well, it uh, it made a number of differences for the West. It began, for instance, the uh, process that would end communion of both kinds in the West. It also uh, made having a solemn high mass at every mass very difficult because so many priests and other ministers of the altar had been killed. Uh, for those familiar with the Byzantine rite and other rites of the Catholic Church in the East, uh, you'll be aware that there's really no such thing as a low liturgy. Well, there didn't used to be in the West either until the Black Death. So styles became a bit grimmer. Uh, in France and other countries, you used to have these beautiful depictions of the Virgin and her infant child smiling. After the Black Death, you didn't see that very often. Everything looked much grimmer in terms of artwork and so forth. But time marched on. 
uh, the Renaissance and its rediscovery of Roman styles came, and then the Protestant Revolt. Now, the Protestant Revolt had a big, big, big effect on the church in a number of ways. For one thing, the Catholic churches in the countries where the uh, so-called Reformation triumphed were repurposed and uh, hacked to bits internally, a greater or lesser degree, depending uh, on which kind of Protestantism took over. Uh, in some, some parts of Germany and in Scandinavia, there's very little damage done to the church's uh, furniture. In England, there were two bouts of it. The immediately following the uh, Protestant revolt, and again under Oliver Cromwell. Calvinist countries like Scotland, the Netherlands, Switzerland, etc., uh, or Protestant Switzerland is also a Catholic half of Switzerland, stayed normal. Um, these, these just... Uh, they destroyed all the interior furnishings because the, the altars were, had to go. The statues, of course, any kind of illustrations, pictures, etc. What was left were the, the bare bones of the building. So that was, uh, that was pretty sad. Indeed, it was criminal. In Catholic countries, however, especially as the 1600s came in, uh, you had the Counter-Reformation when the church made a concerted effort and succeeded in some places to retake the uh, areas they had lost. Well, they did. But out of this new look at the faith, uh, the new style of preaching, new style of presenting the faith, uh, came a new architectural and artistic style which would spread to and be used in Protestant countries as well, although its roots were Catholic. And that is what we call Baroque. <clears throat> well, Baroque, ladies and gentlemen, was very different from Gothic. It was very elaborate. Uh, the, uh, the decorations of churches, uh, Baroque churches, became uh, amazing. Where Colors and some statuary were used to exalt the imagination up to heaven. The Baroque era, they bombarded you with all sorts of images uh, and all sorts of decoration. Nothing, nothing would be left undecorated on a wall. Uh, the pulpit, which had been fairly small before, the root screens were pretty much uh, gotten rid of. And the altar rail took their place, but the rood screen, uh, sorry, the uh, the pulpit, became a very very big thing because preaching became very big during the Counter Reformation, since the Protestant heresies of the different kinds that they had on offer had to be refuted. So preaching became a really really important uh, element of the mass, and as a result, the pulpit became much bigger in Baroque churches. Very different style, very beautiful, but very different. Uh, in a lot of European churches today, you'll see what was obviously once a Gothic church with Baroque furnishings, which provide an interesting uh, 
interesting example of continuity. You also, here and there, you'll, you'll depending on where you are and what you're looking at, you'll see a mixture of uh, Gothic and Baroque imagery. But the altars became much more elaborate. The uh, uh, decoration became much more elaborate. Again, all intended to uh, to pull you into the 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 worship of God, and yet it was where Gothic tended to be sort of ethereal, Baroque was earthy, in a very heaven has come down to earth kind of way, and that is one reason for the enormous amount of realism and stature and so on. And so the Baroque takes us into the 1700s. More when we continue. architecture that we were discussing uh, was used for churches not only throughout Central Europe and France and Spain and Portugal and not just by Protestants in Scandinavia and in Britain and elsewhere. St. Paul's Cathedral is a good example of English Anglican Baroque. But by this time, the, uh, the Spanish, the French, and the Portuguese had uh, established colonies in the New World and in uh, the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in particular, uh, and that includes, by the way, the Portuguese colonies in India and Indonesia and places like that, uh, was Baroque. So whether you go to the great cathedral of Goa in India or uh, the cathedrals of, of uh, Lima and Mexico City, you will find Baroque. Also in the Philippines, the Spanish. So Baroque uh, was probably the, up to this point, the uh, most geographically di diverse style. As the 18th century wore on, it got busier and busier in terms of presentation. You remember, you remember that I said about Baroque that every inch of the wall would be covered and so on. Well, that got more so, and that more so is a style we call Rococo. You don't see it all that often because there weren't that many churches built with it. But when you do, you'll never forget it. There is, it's a feast to the eyes, all right, but it's overwhelming for the brain. And for many years, people were supposed to dislike Rococo. I like it. So there you go. But at any rate, it, uh, it's primarily to be seen in uh, mid to late 18th century churches, especially in Central Europe. Well, as the 18th century wore on, you had what was called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment considered itself very smart and very classically minded. And so in some places, they built churches in classical style, virtually like the Roman style. Um, but 
then the French Revolution came and the church could no longer compromise, as it were, with the world. So the horrors of the French Revolution, the destruction of so many churches and so many beautiful things, uh, followed after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815 with another change architecturally. And that change was the... Um, the growth of what was called the neo-Gothic. Uh, now, there are also sort of revivals of, uh, to a degree, there were revivals of uh, uh, Romanesque. But starting about 1825 in Europe and spreading to the United States, uh, neo-Gothic became more and more and more the style that uh, people wanted to build in. Augustus Pugin was the great popularizer of neo-Gothic in England. From, uh, but from the growth of neo-Gothic came various, believe it or not, political ideas. Yes, indeed. Uh, the arts and crafts movement, for instance, the idea that, uh, like the medieval craftsmen, Rather than working in a factory, the modern craftsman should do individual work and it should be just as important to him as the work of the medieval craftsman was uh, to him. So uh, the arts and crafts movement sort of indirectly developed out of the neo-Gothic because of the uh, interest of people like John Ruskin and William Morris with reproducing medieval techniques. Well, to some degree, that meant they felt reproducing the style of the medieval workman. So the uh, neo-Gothic uh, dominated uh, church building on the on the continent, certainly until World War One, and a lot later in the United States, uh, the arts and crafts movement, which uh, promoted a sort of medieval-esque but rustic kind of style. They did, uh, they did do a number of churches, uh, all of which had that sort of rustic feeling. Uh, out of, to a degree, out of the arts and crafts movement came something called Art Nouveau, which, like the arts and crafts, is very much about using natural uh, ingredients as much as possible in building things and so forth. But it was much more stylized, um, much more iconic, and I say that in the sense of a Byzantine icon. Um, it became a, um, in certain areas, it became an important uh, element of church architecture and church decoration. Uh, Art Nouveau. Now, with the uh, coming of World War One, the um, the last, you might say, major architectural style that was in continuity with its with its forebears arose just after the, the First World War, and we call it they called it Streamline Modern and other things or Art Modern. We call it Art Deco. 
And where Art Nouveau was all flowing lines, Art Deco was all straight ones and advancing into the future. Now, just as there were only a few really beautiful Art Nouveau churches made, there are even fewer Art Deco. One of the most famous is the Shrine of the Little Flower in Detroit, Michigan. And now I have to say a word about American church architecture in general. After the Civil War, uh, the Church of the United States began building churches at a furious rate to keep up with the growth of the Catholic population. To do so, they used every style that I have spoken of, several more, and created certain interesting syncretisms of different uh, types of church. Uh, but they they needed to, they needed to, to put these up as quickly as possible. And so you would find Catholic Gothic churches, Catholic Romanesque, Catholic uh, Arts Catholic Neo-Gothic. Neo-Gothic was very, very big. And just as uh, Pugin, Ruskin, and Morris were great practitioners of it in England, um, the last part of the 19th, first part of the 20th century, uh, Ralph Adams Cram, who was an Anglo-Catholic, that is to say an Episcopalian, who was extremely friendly to Roman Catholics, as he would call them, uh, he became the biggest known designer of churches of all denominations, including Catholic, in the United States. And he was really the, the apogee of American neo-Gothic. Now, all of that having been said, uh, there were also a ton of uh, immigrants who came to the United States, and they brought their own styles or elements of them. So, architecturally speaking, the church in America was very much a grab bag. In Europe after World War I, the Art Deco style did not really translate too much to churches, but a little bit, somewhat. They tend to streamline lines and things like that. Um, and they began experimenting with things like offering the mass ad orientum and so on. Um, it's kind of, to me, fitting that one of the foremost people to do this, uh, Austrian priest named Pius Pasch, who's very famous for his writings on the liturgy, but he was given a parish church in Kloster Neuburg, Austria, St. Gertrude, where he could do whatever he wanted liturgically and in terms of the building. Well, I think it's sort of fitting that today St. Gertrude no longer has a congregation, but is, in fact, a monument to him. It's a, uh, a museum to Pius Pasch, which is kind of fitting, I think, in a lot of ways. But at any rate, um, that was in Europe. So the um, in both Europe and America, church building continued. And then we had World War II, which put a halt to it. When World War II was over, uh, they began to look, just as in, in the secular world, brutalism, as it was called, had taken the place of Art Deco. So, too, in the religious world, people were not really quite sure what they wanted to do about church architecture. And they hired some pretty strange people to assist them in doing so. Um, but at any rate, 
the difficulty that uh, the difficulty that uh, was faced was not just the liturgical; it was also doctrinal, because there was a great struggle going on in the fifties uh, over which direction the liturgical movement, the church itself, should go in. Now, the uh, the build-up to Vatican II, uh, and this would have repercussions on, on architecture, saw a uh, the, the issuance of an encyclical by Pius XII called Mediator Dei. It's a very, very important uh, document, not least because it condemns, among other things, turning an altar into a table. And we'll see what came of that later on. Um, the the uh, church building then also in America uh, really began to sa sacrifice ornamentation for practicality because all over the United States, you had these suburbs spring up and they needed churches yesterday. So very often what they would do is build a structure that would be uh, the church now and the idea was that eventually they'd be able to afford to build a beautiful church, and then the current church would become the auditorium, the parish hall. Well, we'll see what happened with all of that in the next segment. gentlemen in this final segment we'll explore what happened after the council as i mentioned before the council there had been this uh great drive especially in the united states to build functional churches which with that they were functional uh, my little joke is to call them collegeville modern but they were ostentatiously simple uh but after the council, with no warrant, incidentally, from the council, uh, and certainly not from the Roman Missal, which states that uh, the, the first issue of the Roman Missal stated that the uh, Sus Corda, the priest was supposed to turn around and uh, face the, uh, uh, the people, which unless you expect him to spin around like a top, means that he's been offering the Mass at Orientum. Well, never mind. Um, the uh, the fact was that that, be, that was done. The, um, the ad Orientum uh, piece was replaced with, uh, how do I put it? Uh, it was, it was replaced with, um, versus popular toward the people. And that began uh, initially a campaign of setting up sort of tables in front of the altar where the priest could say the mass uh, at Orient, or sorry, versus popular. That was the start of it. Uh, and in Europe, 
it's it's interesting, you know, you see all these beautiful churches in all of the styles we've been mentioning, except Byzantine, which they didn't do this. But no matter how beautiful the altar, there usually be, not always, but usually the so-called people's altar, the table that's put in front of it, is almost inversely ugly or ridiculous looking to the beauty of its surroundings. You know, you, you go into a place that's beautiful, Gothic or Neo-Gothic or Baroque or whatever you like, and there's this plastic thing, clear plastic thing sitting in front of the altar or, or something else like that, whatever it might be. Well, that was the start of it. But then you got into, especially the United States, but also elsewhere, it wasn't as bad in Europe because so many of the churches are either owned by the respective government or else have uh, some kind of uh, landmark or, or monument status, which means that uh, in return for taking the monies from the government, they have to obey to a degree. But in the United States, it let loose an orgy of iconoclasm, and in church after church after church across this great country of ours, uh, they not only put in a, a table, they ripped out the high altars, which are often extraordinary examples of Gothic, Romanesque, uh, Art Deco, whatever. Uh, they just tore them out brutally. Uh, and then they would throw out the altar rails, of course, and the statues um, until you had in church after church a very bare, ruined exterior. They'd, just like in the Protestant Revolt, they would whitewash images on the wall. Uh, it, it, it really was a terrible, terrible time. I remember it very well, that, that horrible, horrible time of iconoclasm. It was terrible. But time went on. Time went on. And over the past 20 years, there has been a slow revival of traditional views of church architecture and of uh, people willing to make beautiful churches. Now, the other thing about it, of course, is that uh, slowly but surely, uh, in the Novo Soto, at Orientum began to return, and of course the Tridentine Mass became wider and wider and wider spread. So all of this had repercussions, and in the time of Pope Benedict XVI, uh, Catholic churches began building beautiful churches again. People like Duncan Stroik in uh, Notre Dame, or the Ralph uh, Cram and Ferguson, the Ralph Adams Cram Company in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, began designing churches again. And the ugly, brutalist architecture of the 70s, which had become, uh, I mean, that was the step beyond the iconoclasm, was building these ugly structures. Uh, they were almost aggressively ugly. Well, that has lessened considerably over the past 20 years, up until the present, of course. Um, and doubtless it will continue here and there until, until all memory of the great ugliness is left behind. So now that, uh, now that we've reached this, this point chronologically, I suppose uh, 
we can now look at a couple of questions that we might have. I mentioned earlier that people like uh, Pugin and Ruskin and Morris and so on said that the Gothic is superior to everything else. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. What is certainly true is that then the rather uh, ugly style, the brutalist style that's, that uh, supplanted them. So it only makes sense when a, uh, uh, a priest or a group of laity are uh, trying to uh, either found or, or build a new church for an existing parish. It only makes perfect sense that they would um, want to get away from that style, which has the effect of negating what the church teaches about the Blessed Sacrament. Because again, people do not just exist on the intellectual level. They also exist as feeling beings, as intuiting beings. Uh, when you go into a place that is ugly as sin and the tabernacle can't be found, that gives you one mood. You go into another that's quite lovely. You can see a big, uh, the tabernacle is on the altar. You see a, a big red lamp. Well, that does something for you also. And uh, it certainly gives you the chance to relax and, and feel, feel the company of heaven. Uh, but don't feel that you've got to specialize. I mean, the, the, that ugly brutalism aside, don't feel that you need to specialize in any one type of church architecture. Enjoy as much of it as you can, so long as it fits its function. And that, at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, is the real problem with the structures of the 70s. It's not just that they were ugly, though they were. Uh, LA's Cathedral comes to mind. It's not just that. It's, it's that... Uh, they're not, they don't adequately reflect what the church teaches is going on in them. Ugly is not what our Lord taught the church or the church teaches us is, is the sacrament of the altar. It's not ugly, it's beautiful, and it's splendid, and it's glorious. So whatever style of church architecture you end up going for, on one level, it's not that important as long as the style reflects the glory and majesty of our Lord and the fact of his ongoing presence in the Blessed Sacrament. That is how you evaluate how uh, either church, uh, a given style of church architecture or a different manner of offering the Mass is superior or inferior. It all depends on how well they express what they are doing. Now, uh, that brings us back again to uh, form following function. Ultimately, people will always differ on what particular style of church architecture they prefer or they feel is the best. 
And that's that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. What is important is that whatever style of church architecture a given church has, someone who comes in off the street can look and realize that nothing else, the focus of attention is on that altar. And if, please God, they're uh, doing things at Orientum, on that odd-looking box on top of the altar. The little door in God's house, uh, how does that go, it's from Lepanto. Uh, the little room in God's house where the earth seems very dear. It, I, I, I'm not quoting it properly, but basically the notion is that you have the immensity of God looking out out of the world from the tabernacle. Uh, I think it's a beautiful symbol of the, of the reality. And the reality is that every church should look like a province of heaven, whether it's Baroque or Gothic or anything else. It should focus our minds immediately we go in on the Blessed Sacrament. It should not only take us out of ourselves, but fortify us in fighting the world, the uh, the flesh, and the devil. These are not small things, and church architecture is not a small thing. Whether you like a particular style more than another, whether you're able to convince people, if you're at a parish council meeting or something, you're trying to approve a new, uh, a new church. Remember these principles. They're very, very important. For too long, they have been disregarded, and the result have been churches that neither reflect the awful truth, the reality of the majesty who dwells therein, or the excitement of his coming down upon the altar. So if you're in a, a parish which is beginning to rebuild, uh, ask these questions and make sure that whatever comes out of the planning stage it's something that is recognizably Catholic. It's something where it is obvious to the casual viewer that at that altar, something extraordinary is going on. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I wish you a very fine good night, and we shall see you next week. But don't forget the rosary afterwards. <laughs>